In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. A friend of mine was waking up her nine-year-old this morning, and she went down to uh, say good morning. And instead of uh, returning that salutation, he pointed to the graying roots of her hair and said, Mommy, you're getting older. She figured afterward that she could just go ahead and skip Ash Wednesday services, that she'd gotten all the reminder of her mortality that she needed for that day. Of course, we're not really here to talk so much about aging as what is painful about aging. It's fun to go from age 9 to 10 and to turn 12 and to turn 16. I don't know what it is. What's not fun is decay. (laughs) Decay, the inexorable breaking down of our bodies. That's what hurts. And it hurts physically and it hurts emotionally. My friend remarked that she hadn't scheduled her next cut in color for two weeks. And so she's gonna sort of, you know, move it up like 10 days. We'll see if she can get there. I'll let you know, but I do know this. I grew up in a house full of boys, and one thing I've learned since getting married is that hair requires upkeep. And I'm not talking about male hair. Uh, I'm talking about hair requires upkeep, not just my friend. It is an enormously exhausting thing to act like you're not aging and to keep that gray at bay. Now, I say this, there's another word for it is entropy, by the way. Paul Walker used that in a a daily devotional the other day, which is simply the gradual decline of all matter to which we are all subject to. And you don't have to be someone dealing with graying hair. You can simply be a person who's alive. Um, You know, I'm always struck by how quickly, when I stop exercising, how I fall out of shape just almost immediately. I mean, it's just like you have to do it every single day or at least four times a week, three times a week, two times a week, at least once every two weeks. But it relates beyond the human body, doesn't it? Wood rots, metal rusts, foundations crack, tires wear down, so do shoes and fabric and furniture. The amount of time and money and attention it takes to keep a house simply in the same shape that it was in when you moved in. It's depressing. I mean, we're not talking about improving your house. Just making sure it doesn't collapse. I mean, I think your roof uh, probably needs to be replaced in the next five years. I don't know about, 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 uh, uh, I got mine done a couple years ago, so I'm good for the next 10 to 15 years or something like that. I don't know what it is, but I know that we're constantly being told we have to replace, we have to do upkeep, we have to repair. And again, it's not just in fact bodies or houses, It's relationships. There's no autopilot. Relationships require constant maintenance, communication, therapy, checking in, shoring up love and connection, or else they fall apart. This decaying trend also applies to institutions. I can speak for the church. I know that what worked last year may not work this year. I know that without fresh energy 
and insight and people that uh, institutions atrophy. Schools are always in need of new vision statements, fresh, uh, fresh insight. Governments are always in need of reform. Entropy is the law of the land. Decay is the law of the body. Now the cruel truth that we've come here to, 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 to talk about on this Wednesday evening is that no matter how much time or money we spend on upkeep, decay wins. It wins. Upkeep is ultimately futile. That is a big part of what we're here to remember. In a world that tells you you can keep it at bay, I'm here to tell you you can't. To dust we shall all return and are returning this very second. What did Eleanor Roosevelt say? Today is the oldest you've ever been and the youngest you'll ever be. Oh, thanks, Eleanor. <laughs> now, upkeep like this functions not only as pushback against decay, but I think as a distraction from it. I read an article last year by a writer named Jonathan Jarks. In April 2021, at the age of 33, he was diagnosed with very severe cancer, a sarcoma. This came as a major shock. He knew in his head that he would die one day, but he figured it'd be like his father at age 70, his grandparents. And he talks about how much more shocking that is to realize that it's not, it's not just uh, it's possible for him to die, but that he likely will die soon. It's more shocking in a culture of denial. He said this, he says, one of the best metaphors I've heard for modern life is that it's a car headed toward a cliff's edge while billboards line both sides of the road blocking the driver's view. Those billboards are all the distractions that society has to offer. Netflix, sports, career, movies, art, church, everything you consume to avoid thinking about where you are actually headed. And those billboards cover your view until the end of the road when suddenly the cliff approaches. And then as your car is flying in the air, that's when you start thinking about death and the meaning of life. So think of Ash Wednesday as a little detour through Vermont. You've been to Vermont recently? They don't have billboards there. It's very pretentious, but it's very... It's, <laughs> It's wonderful that they do that. Um, but imagine you go through Vermont and, and you see the leaves changing colors, which of course is a sign of what? Decay, yes. But there's only one billboard, and that billboard shouts in capital letters, Remember thou art dust, and unto dust thou shalt return. It is, on the surface, terrifying. Yet, at second thought, it's profoundly liberating. Because this ultimate cliff <laughs> toward which we are all headed, uh, it puts our daily lives into perspective, does it not? It means that you are not that important. I am not that important. Your children are not that important. Where you live and what job you have and what kind of decaying house you live in and whether or not you're able to pay your bills or achieve any career success or manage to get anyone to think highly of you isn't that important. That's what Ash Wednesday is here to announce. And that's part of the refreshing 
good news buried in this grim headline, but there's more. I, I, I wrote a book about it last year called Low Anthropology, but one of the books that I read to, 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 to inspire me was a book by Oliver Berkman called 4,000 Weeks. You read this book, 4,000 Weeks of the Average Human Lifespan. How many, how many do you have left, right? I mean, you came in the doors. This is what Ash Wednesday is. <laughs> it's not a happy day. Um, he wrote in 4,000 Weeks, he says, when you grasp the sense in which your situation is completely hopeless, instead of just very challenging, you can unclench. You get to exhale. You no longer have to go through life adopting the brace position because uh, you see that the plane has already crashed. You come to appreciate how much of your distress arose not from the situation itself, but from your efforts to hold yourself back from it, to keep alive the hope that it might not be as it really is. Use a little less energy, perhaps, to deny and distract. This is a profoundly unifying message, is it not? In a world in which we divide ourselves according to every conceivable category and opinion, that's no small thing. No matter who you are, no matter what your experience of life is, that cliff awaits you too. But let us remember that this is not just a day to acknowledge our mortality. It is what the Bible calls, or what the prayer book calls, a day of repentance. It's a day reserved for radical honesty of letting go of our illusions about ourselves. Repentance for what the Bible tells us lies behind the curse of death, which is the reality of sin. It is the day to look our low anthropology in the face, to tell the truth that we are not just flawed, or broken, or only human. We are not rational beings making healthy choices, improving ourselves into posterity. We are limited, conflicted, self-centered creatures tied in knots of our own making. We know the right thing to do, but we cannot seem to do it with any consistency. Moreover, we don't really want to. Things are not okay. I am not okay. You are not okay. We are all in profound need of help. A friend of mine described the worst feeling she ever had was when she was in high school and someone walked up behind her while she was saying something clever at that person's expense. And it wasn't just the worst feeling she ever had because of the hurt she'd inflicted on this person, but because of what it forced her to see about herself, that she made fun of people all the time, people who didn't deserve it, who were beneath her in the social hierarchy, just to ingratiate herself or make herself seem funny or cool. Now, that's serious. That's not neutral. There's damage involved in that kind of behavior. Multiply that tendency by the number of people in the world and the number of minutes in the day, and what do you get? You get a world that looks a lot, a lot like our world. Any other view 
will not make sense of human history, let alone your own history. Then again, if this is really the view of human nature that we are reminded of on Ash Wednesday, perhaps that's a relief. Perhaps it feels good to know that you're not the only one who's a train wreck. You're not the only one making it up as you go along or holding on for dear life. Maybe, and I hope, I hope it does, I hope that ushers in, let it sink in. I mean, maybe it will usher in some compassion and patience for other people who are just like you. But the last thing that we need to remember today in this day of repentance is that this tendency, this reality of sin is not neutral and that God cares. God cares about the damage we inflict and God cares about the damage that has been inflicted upon us. This is why the Bible tells us that death and sin are inextricably linked. They cannot be untangled. In fact, Paul says that the wages of sin is death. Somehow, they're linked. And so when we come up to this altar and we place that mark on our head, uh, or Josh does, the point is not to call attention to how great we are or how observant or pious we are. No, that is an admission of our mortality of the cliff and of our shortcoming and of our humanity. It is not an act of virtue signaling. It is an act of vice signaling. It is you saying to the world that God's verdict against sin of death and decay applies to me. I do not lie outside the bounds of complicity and culpability. I am not special. I am not entitled. I am just like you. Which again, is a tough thing to say. It's a tough thing to hear. But it is the truth. And the good thing about this truth though, is that it puts you and me into the category of people that God cares about. You see, Jesus himself came not for righteous people. He came for sinners. It's only those who are dead and dying who are eligible for a resurrection. Only those who have trespassed who are eligible for forgiveness and absolution. And so, as I close, let's not just acknowledge death and sin. Because those aren't just ashes being put on your forehead. They're ashes in the shape of a cross. It is a sign that you do not go over that cliff or into that grave alone, but under the banner of Christ, who has gone before you. As Paul says, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will also certainly be united with him in his resurrection. Unlike so much else, this promise of eternal life is not subject to entropy or decay. It is rock solid. And it is the reason we can repeat the wonderful words of Anne Lamott, who articulates the core truth of our lives, that we are so ruined and we are so loved 
and we are in charge of so little. The human situation is irremediable from within itself. But today, thank God, we look outside ourselves to what all sinners truly need, which is a crucified and risen Savior, the Son of God who did not come to condemn you, but to deliver you into a kingdom where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Amen.